0: Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I am Bekke Ukelina, your host. My guest today is Professor Nick Cheeseman. He is a professor of democracy at the University of Birmingham and was formerly director of the African Studies Centre at Oxford University. Professor Cheesman will be speaking to us today about his new book, Institutions and Democracy in Africa, How the Rules of the Game Shape Political Developments. Professor Chiefman, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Could you please begin by telling me a little bit about your research background and how uh, you became interested in studying African democracies?
1: Well, I've been working on Africa for about 10 years now. I wrote my PhD on the one-party states of Zambia and Kenya, and one of the questions I was interested in there was how did the one-party states set in motion kind of a form of politics that then characterizes these countries today so the interesting question of kenya and zambia is you have two quite similar one-party states and yet in the zambian context it seems to contain ethnicity to some extent and then lead to a more productive and democratic uh, single-party regime whereas in the kenyan context you see this intense multi-party competition high levels of corruption And then, of course, you get a multi-party system under Daniel A. Moy that is highly repressive. And so the two countries look very different at a number of moments in time. And so that got me interested in a number of key questions which also animate this book about the way in which political structures shape political developments, the way in which uh, the interaction between social structures and political structures between the informal and the formal actually shape the way that politics plays out. But one of the things i was always really interested in was this question of when do political institutions actually matter and one of the things it seemed to me looking at the one-party states was that the structure of those institutions did matter they actually shaped the opportunities for presidents they shaped the opportunities for the political leaders and as a result of that they actually played a really important role in shaping the kind of leaders and the kind of parties that emerged. And so I was always resistant to the idea that African politics was institutionless, that we could treat Africa as if it didn't have any institutions at all. So I always had in the back of my mind the idea that one day I wanted to write a book about why formal institutions like legislatures and political parties actually matter more than people think they do when it comes to Africa. Thank you.
0: And uh, you, you see this charge that African states are strong societies with very weak uh, weak states or that they lack meaningful uh, formal political institutions, as you just um, uh, mentioned, and your book uh, addresses this um, charge. Could you say something about this critique of African states and your challenge of this view?
1: Sure. So I think many of the listeners will be aware of some of the kind of classic statements of this point of view. I mean, perhaps the most famous would be Shabal and book, Africa Works, which really makes an argument for Africa being institutionless. Effectively, the formal institutions we see are kind of shimmer as their images. They are ghosts. They don't really reflect an underlying reality. And on the basis of that kind of analysis, what Shabal and tell us is we shouldn't be studying institutions. We shouldn't be looking at Africa through the lens of institutions. We should be studying, you know, subterranean social networks, personal ties, patrimonialism in different formats and so on. And so they encourage us away from kind of formal uh, politics, formal institutions, and towards a set of other issues that are, you know, no doubt very interesting. And they kind of wrap that up with a methodological claim about how we should study Africa, so how we should think about Africa and how we should study it. And without wanting to kind of Uh, disregard all of the insights of that literature because there are of course a number of good points there about the fact that African states are often weaker in a lot of different empirical uh, ways we can measure them than states in other parts of the world. What I wanted to do was argue back against that. I want to argue that actually if we try and study Africa without thinking about institutions we miss so much, so much of what is going on. And there are very simple ways of making that point, one of which is to talk about the number of states in which presidential term limits have now been consolidated and institutionalized. And the fact that in those countries, presidents don't get to rule for as long as they want anymore. They have to step down when presidential term limits are expired. You know, nobody in Kenya believes that President Uhuru Kenyatta will try and serve beyond his two-term limits when his current term in office ends. So I wanted to make that case. But we also in the book make a much more subtle case and a much more profound case which is that actually certain things like the structure of financial systems and the structure of land rights and the structure of economic systems shape the prospects for political violence and they shape the prospects for strong oppositions and so they shape the prospects for political change. And this is to say it's not about talking about whether or not a particular institution is respected by a particular leader. This is talking about the way the fundamental institutions that actually manage and structure all of society – Actually, shape differences between one country and another. So, a great example of that is Leonardo Ariola's work. What Leo's doing there is he's really talking to us about how do we get oppositions, how do we get effective coalitions, under what conditions do different kinds of political parties and politics emerge. And he links that very persuasively with fantastic quantitative and qualitative data to the fact that in some countries there is much greater access to finance and to credit and to economic resources. And in some countries, there is much less. And in turn, he links that to the way in which different systems of finance have developed over time? Are they centralised or decentralised? Are they under the control of the ruling party or have they been privatised and they're in uh, a much greater number of hands? And he basically shows us that the more centralised and the more politicised and manipulated access to finance, the harder it is for opposition parties to get finance, the harder it is for them to put coalitions together. And so the less likely they are to be successful in that. And that's profoundly important because we know that when we get stronger opposition parties that are more united, we're more likely to have transfers of power. So what he's showing us is that underlying fundamental economic rules and laws shape the opportunity to get access to finance and credit, which in turn have profound effects on the kind of parties that emerge and how successful they are.
0: I I just wonder how scholars like uh, Chabelle and Deluxe will will explain... um the successful uh, democratic transitions and institutions in African countries, such as um, Botswana, or even, uh, as you mentioned, with um, term limits, for example, Ghana and Nigeria have gone through uh, successful democratic transitions in recent uh, recent times. Um, uh, we see incumbent uh, presidents uh, voted out of power by uh, by the people and opposition leaders, uh, uh, opposition parties come into into power. And I remember clearly the case in Nigeria with President Obasanjo, who tried to influence the legislature to to change the constitution to allow him to run for a third term as president, um, despite the fact that the National Assembly belonged to his own uh, party, they couldn't grant him um, his wish. Are these not clear examples of how formal institutions are actually working? And so how will Chabelle and Deluxe and others who subscribe to this argument, how would they explain uh, these examples?
1: Well, I suppose there's two things we could say there. I mean, one, they may say to us, look, our book was published a little while back and we've changed our minds. We recognize that in some ways formal institutions have become more important. They could do that. They could argue that the cases you just identified are outliers. So they could say, actually, a number of those cases, um, you know, are sort of special cases. And actually, they're not where the kind of majority of African states are. That would be a second option. Another option available to them would be to say, a lot of what you say is true. And we recognize that some of these institutions have hardened or become more effective over the last 20 years. But isn't it also true that African democracy is under threat from challenges to formal institutions. And of course, that point is also true. Uh, We have seen a number of years of democratic recession in Africa where the average level of respect for civil liberties and political rights um, has actually fallen. So I think they could have some ammunition if they wanted to, to kind of either to sort of suggest that they were writing about a different moment in time, or perhaps to recognize um, a small number of outliers, or finally maybe to say and that actually overall the picture that we're painting is too rosy. Um, And there I think the important thing is that the book doesn't try and argue that institutions matter all of the time, that all institutions matter, or that institutions matter equally across Africa. In fact, one of the things I think the book is quite good at doing is trying to identify when is it that an institution starts to matter? When do we see a political party start to develop internal party democracy? When is it that we actually see... um, legislature actually hold a president to account when do we see the police actually enforcing gender-based violence laws and we're very good i think in the different contributors the authors that have given up their time to write chapters at actually teasing out what is it that allows those formal rules to take place and i think that's really the exciting bit of the book for the future that it lays clear a potential new research agenda where we can actually start to talk in a more sophisticated way about under what conditions the formal institutions actually start to determine political outcomes.
0: Um, And the difference is in the book, they speak about both formal and informal institutions. So in what ways do these uh, two uh, institutional forms shape and strengthen each other? For example, how can informal institutions strengthen, let's say, the legislature or judiciary?
1: Thanks. Yeah. So it's important to make it clear for our reader listeners, uh, what a formal institution is, what an informal institution is. So when we're talking about formal institutions, it's those kind of bricks and mortar, big democratic institutions. We're talking about the legislature, political parties. Uh, We're talking about the constitution and so on. And when we're talking about those informal processes, we're talking about kind of social norms, personal networks, the kind of things that in the African context have often been referred to as neopatrimonialism. And one of the things that I try and do in the conclusion to the book, which is also there in many of the chapters uh, that uh, make the book up, is to tease apart these two different institutions and to talk about how they interact with each other. And I argue that, you know, the institutionalist school, the sort of Cheval and los argument we were talking about a moment ago, one of the things that that argument tends to do is it tends to basically suggest that the informal institutions are so powerful in Africa that they override the formal ones at every turn. In other words, it's the patrimonialism and the strength of personal relationships that allow the formal institutions to be eroded. And it's kind of what Migdal says, it's that strong societies and weak states. And I say, yes, that's true in some cases, but that competitive relationship between the formal and the informal is actually only one of a number of relationships that might be there. And I draw on literature from uh, the Latin American context to make the point that, of course, democratization requires the supportive uh, existence of supportive informal institutions and informal institutions may actually buttress and sustain and support democracy as much as they may compete with it. And so in the conclusion to the book, I give examples of these kinds of informal norms. So one would be, for example, in Nigeria, the norm of sharing power between different parts of the country. Now, some political parties have now formalized that in their rules, but actually, for a long time, this was an informal agreement between elites and parties and Uh, not actually codified in the country's constitution, about the way in which power would be shared, that if it was held by a southerner one time, it should be held by a northerner the next time. And that process, which is called zoning, uh, has often enabled the country uh, to avoid greater political tension because it allows power to revolve between the North and South so that no one feels permanently excluded. Now, that's a kind of informal process that's actually developed which sustains and strengthens democracy. So the conclusion makes the case that while some informal institutions erode democratic institutions, others actually might support them. And that what we therefore need to start doing is separating out informal institutions, looking at their interaction with formal institutions, and through that interaction, working out whether they're actually supporting or undermining. And of course, the fundamental point here goes back to a kind of... uh, Northian understanding of institutions that institutions are never going to hold formal institutions are never going to hold in the long term unless they are underpinned by supportive informal institutions but that we often ignore those informal institutions because they're not visible so we only really think about them when they're causing problems or when they're contrasting with formal institutions when they support formal institutions we tend to overlook them but actually they're playing just as critical a role in that context and so the conclusion is a kind of call to arms for political scientists to pay greater attention to the interaction t- between the informal and the formal.
0: One of the things that I have observed in Africa is a high level of uh, turnout during elections, even when people know that uh, the elections might be rigged by the ruling uh, the ruling party. What is the research saying about this? Do regular uh, elections that are not free and fair still play a positive role in shaping democracies as both uh, Carolyn Van Ham and uh, Stefan Lindbergh argue in their contribution.
1: Thank you. Well, yes, they do a really interesting contribution to the book. And they actually take Stefan Lindbergh's earlier hypothesis, which was that repeatedly holding elections improves the quality of democracy over time. So holding elections has an independent causal effect on the quality of democracy. And they test that with new data, which brings things up to date. And what they find is that Lindbergh's initial uh, argument holds, but with a caveat. As you said, in in Lindbergh's initial argument uh, from his well-known book, what he argued was that it doesn't really matter what the quality of the elections is, you get this positive uplift as long as you keep holding them. And three was a lucky number. More than three consecutive elections seemed to be the threshold for this kind of liftoff to really take place. If we look at the new chapter, what they find is a similar outcome, but actually only above a certain threshold. So what they now find is that the quality of the elections has to be of a certain threshold for this positive story of elections promoting democracy to take place. Now, that threshold is very low, so they're not saying that elections need to be great quality to have this effect, but they're saying that actually when elections are truly terrible, they might not have it. So it's a kind of nuancing um, of Lindbergh's original argument that confirms his central thesis.
0: Uh, The other part of my question is, what motivates people to vote even when they know that the elections might not be really fair or free.
1: Oh, that's a great question. And actually, I've got an, another book coming out that we could talk about maybe some other time, which is called How to Rig an Election, um, which actually is more pertinent to this because it talks about a number of things that happen to voters. And of course, you know, voters vote for a number of reasons. So they might vote out of solidarity. Uh, solidarity for a leader of the same ethnicity solidarity for their community solidarity for people of the same economic class they may vote because they really believe it's going to change the outcome but as you say there's a lot of elections that we know that's unlikely to happen but of course one of the reasons they may also turn out to vote is because of electoral bribery and one of the things our research shows is that electoral bribery is actually fairly common across elections particularly in africa but also elsewhere. Of course, it's not always thought of as electoral bribery. It might be thought of as a legitimate practice. But the giving of something small around elections does create moral bonds that people then feel they need to uphold by actually turning out to vote. And at the same time, you know, we have to not forget that coercion plays a role. I've studied and worked in a number of elections across a number of countries, Kenya, Uh, Uganda, Ghana, now Zimbabwe. And one of the things I'm very aware of is that people do feel coerced around election time. They feel they need to show up and that if they don't show up, if they don't get that inky finger, they're going to be uh, looked down upon. They might not be allowed on buses. They might not be served in shops because they will be seen to have not done their duty by the party or community that expects them to vote a certain way. So I think when you add all of that up, you know, optimism, solidarity, potential voter bribery, and coercion you can start to get a sense of why turnout might be so high. Of course the final thing to say is that sometimes we're not sure turnout is that high and there have been a couple of times when turnout figures seem to have been inflated to make the ruling party look better. So we also have to be careful about how free and fair we think the elections were and how good quality the results really are.
0: I want to also ask you about uh, constitutions in um, in Africa. So while countries like South Africa have very progressive uh, constitutions, and even Kenya with the most um, recent constitution, and some of these constitutions protect the rights of minorities such as LGBTQ uh, people. But other countries like Uganda and Nigeria are moving toward uh, more retrogressive um systems and constitutions with criminalization of these minority uh, groups. What are the political forces behind these uh, changes?
1: That's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, we have the Kenyan constitution and the South African, which are very progressive and impose a lot of checks and balances on the executive. And then we also see, you know, quite recently, for example, in Uganda, President Museveni removing age limits uh, so that he can stay in office. And not only removing age limits, but following that up by changing uh, the constitution so that the length of the presidential term goes up to seven years. So we see that. And I think one of the key factors here is the balance of power within the country. So when we're looking at a country uh, like Kenya... You know, the constitution was formed in a moment of political crisis in which the opposition and the ruling party were relatively equally balanced and it was therefore a process of negotiation so there was only so much the ruling party could get away with there was only so much the opposition was prepared to accept and so although constitutional changes in Kenya have still tended to favor the ruling party overall uh, we saw a lot greater degree of compromise and that 2010 constitution because of that compromise could then build in civil society voices and support from the international community and um, for more progressive elements. When we move away from that more balanced political spectrum and perhaps a greater degree of open sort of political space, to somewhere like Uganda or Rwanda where the ruling party is highly authoritarian, where it dominates Parliament, where opposition parties are fairly weak and fragmented, where high levels of coercion mean that civil society groups can't really operate, we don't see those kind of bargaining processes over constitutions all of the time. Sometimes we see the constitution being pretty much amended by the ruling party and forced through with the great use of repression and the control of the media and the bribery of MPs. And in that context, it becomes much more difficult to ensure that the constitution respects minority rights and restrains the president. So I think it's those two very different political contexts um, that give rise to those very different constitutions. And one of the things that's worth thinking about is, you know, whether in Africa we are moving towards a situation where African states look fairly similar in terms of the levels of democracy and the constitutions they have, or whether they're actually moving further apart. And one of the things that I've done in some of my newspaper columns is to actually argue that we're seeing a very big democratic divergence in Africa, that some countries are becoming more democratic over time and really consolidating. And some countries are actually reverting to a more authoritarian context. And the gap between those two sets of countries is actually growing. And so it doesn't make sense to speak of, you know, one Africa or African politics or African democracy. There are, in a way, two or three sets of states that are in very different places and moving in very different directions.
0: Yeah. So even when the constitutions pro- um, provide rights to different groups within a um, within country, but if there isn't a judiciary that is strong, uh, those rights might not be enforceable. Um, but very often, in some of the judiciaries across the continent, um, they don't really function as as the shield, right, from accusations of blatant corruption um, of judges or cases being abandoned in the docket for many years. How can judges help promote? institutionalization?
1: Well, that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, we've seen processes of judicial review and reform uh, make a big difference. In Kenya, for example, a process of judicial vetting went hand in hand with the 2010 constitution and did remove some judges who were seen to have been corrupt and boosted public confidence in the process. So that process of judicial vetting can be very effective. Um, But of course, it doesn't help if what you're doing is removing old corrupt judges, but bringing in new corrupt judges. So you also need to create greater degree of judicial independence. And that means independence of sort of financial conditions, independent sets of service and a review body that is not politicized and under the control of the ruling party. But the judiciary is also only one part of the puzzle here. And of course, the judiciary can only hear cases that are brought to it in many cases. um, And it can only deal with the evidence that's brought to it because most judiciaries and Supreme Courts don't have evidence collating capacity. And so that means they're dependent on the quality of civil society. They're dependent on civil society bringing them high quality information and evidence about important cases that they can then rule upon. So it's that intersection really between a high quality judiciary and a high quality civil society that I think is really important. And one of the problems and challenges we see in many African countries is either we see a fairly weak civil society or a fairly weak judiciary or in some cases both. And that makes it very difficult to use the rule of law to actually constrain African presidents.
0: Yeah. So even when you have an independent um, review, um, as you just mentioned, uh, those um, those boards um, might also be corrupted. Um, we I know that uh, with the case in Nigeria, which I study, um, even agencies uh, set up by the government, like uh, the EFCC um, or the Independent uh, Corruption, um, whatever the name is, uh, those end up also being accused of uh, being uh, corrupt. Uh, Corruption has a big impact on institutions. Are there ways to deal with this problem? Do you think anti-corruption agencies or new state uh, bureaucracies have some successes, even if marginal?
1: We've seen a couple of small successes in some countries. The problem is that when anti-corruption efforts become too successful, they tend to be closed down. Uh, and also, of course, that anti-corruption drives have typically been accused of being used as a way of punishing your political opponents. So, for example, if we look at Zimbabwe now, where, of course, the coup that wasn't a coup, but was a coup and that removed Robert Mugabe from power, um, you know, led to a new faction, the Lacoste faction, so-called under Emerson Mnangagwa, taking power. You know, one of the things that that government is accused of by some people is using anti-corruption accusations to go after some of its enemies but not using them to go after other people who are closer to the new regime and effectively letting them off and in that context anti-corruption sometimes works it's used but it's used in a very specific way that actually is designed to get rid of enemies and rivals rather than actually to um, genuinely clean up politics and that's a significant challenge. I think we have seen in a small number of countries genuine attempts to set up anti-corruption drives that have been successful and effective and one of those of course that's often cited is Rwanda uh, where people often talk about low levels of crime and low levels of uh, corruption in government and that being one of the great successes of the poor Kagame regime. And one of the things we see there is that those measures had high-level support, so support from the RPF, but the RPF also had very tight control over the political system, and so it was able to force that through. I think one of the things we see in many other countries is, on the one hand, we don't see the high level of political commitment to reducing corruption, so we don't have that sort of figure at the top forcing this through, but also we often see people who don't have as much control as Kagame. We often see governments that are split into two or three factions, and corruption is one of the ways in which those governments keep the factions happy. And stopping the corruption for one faction becomes very difficult before you stop it for other factions, and stopping it for all factions is often very unpopular. And so the fact that you often have divisions with the government and that their ability to perpetrate corruption scams is part of what they get out of being in the regime makes it very difficult then to enforce this central set of rules that everybody is going to stop being corrupt. And if you look at recent literature on places like Tanzania, but also places like Kenya, you can see the way in which the divisions within the ruling party actually make it harder to deal with corruption issues than it might be otherwise.
0: Confidence in policing is very low in Africa, as it's mentioned um, mentioned in the book. I would dare to say this is not only an African problem, it's a worldwide um Worldwide problem. But Peace Medi in her chapter says that there are some successes with policing in um, in Liberia. So, my question is uh, what lessons can other African countries learn from Liberia?
1: I think there are a number of things that happen in Liberia at the same time. One, there is high level political support for dealing with gender issues better. And of course, in that context, you have Ellen Selif Johnson, Africa's first elected head of state. So, you have a particular political context which is supportive. Two, uh, you have changes to the legislation that genuinely create new opportunities to prosecute uh, more effectively. And three, you have programs that are designed to train and work with the police force and to make them more sensitive to some of these issues. And it's all of those factors coming together at the same time that means you get movement towards a better job from the police on things like enforcing gender based uh, laws against gender-based violence. Now, that doesn't mean that it's perfect. It, does, You know, Peace Medi's chapter on this, an excellent chapter, doesn't argue that everything is perfect. There's a number of issues um, that, you know, still remain poor. Uh, enforcement is patchy it often actually requires people to be incredibly brave in order to do it Uh, so she's not arguing that this is a panacea but she is showing that when those three things come together you actually get movement and a significant improvement on what was being done before and so on the one hand as you say we are very aware of the poor levels of public confidence in the police not only you know in other parts of the world but particularly in sub-saharan africa but what her chapter shows us is a little bit of a kind of ray of sunlight that actually it is possible even in really difficult post-conflict cases to turn that around with the right political support and the right institutional changes and that that should be uh, a lesson for other african states about what is possible
0: i also want to ask you about uh... Political parties in um, in Africa, uh, one of the things I have observed um, is the lack of ideological differences between them. Some are more structured ethnically than ideological, uh, ideologically. How uh, do the structures of parties affect uh, this political institution itself, the way they are structured?
1: How does the structure of parties affect it? I think the structure of parties is absolutely critical. I mean, just to take one very small example, the more effectively structured the party is in terms of having well-regulated and well-understood mechanisms for selecting presidential candidates, the less likely it is to suffer big splits when it has to do so, and therefore the more likely it is to retain power if it's a ruling party. So where we see parties going into Uh, big disputes because we've got a president that has to stand down because of term limits or because a president has died in office, which of course has sadly happened in places like Zambia a number of times. When we see that, the ability of the ruling party to manage that without big splits is related to how well organized it is internally, how institutionalized that process of replacing that president with a new candidate is, and how well accepted that is, By the members of the party and where that process is very well established we often see parties survive the political secession process and find a new candidate and win the upcoming election but when that process actually is very poorly understood or is very controversial leads to high levels of disagreement we often see one faction of the ruling party splitting joining with the opposition and actually inflicting a defeat on what was the former ruling party at a later point in time. So the structure of the political parties and their internal capacity to manage processes like presidential succession are actually really important to uh, the longevity of ruling parties and the prospects for opposition party success. And that's one of the ways in which political party structures can really have a big impact not just on parties but on politics more broadly.
0: As someone who studies African democracies, where do you see the future of African democratic institutions? What are some countries you think might make significant breakthroughs and build stronger um, institutions in the near future and why?
1: Well, I think it's always very difficult to make strong predictions because, of course, the path of democratization, if it does occur, is never straightforward. It's never linear. You often see countries taking two steps forward to take one step back or one step backwards and then two steps forwards. Um, And so, you know, there aren't going to be countries that I think we can point to and say, ah, they're going to have straightforward gains from now on. It's all going to be rosy. But I do think, you know, we can see countries that have made considerable progress and keep making progress. In Ghana, for example, we know that Ghana was one of the countries in Africa that had two transfers of power and a more independent electoral commission. But it hadn't until recently actually seen a sitting president lose an election. Every election election we'd seen that had led to a transfer of power had occurred when the president had stood down because of term limits but the last election we saw that the actual sitting president was defeated and i think that pushes ghana again into an even stronger position in terms of the quality of its core democratic institutions and the willingness of people to invest in them and to abide by them. So I see that we've got a positive move there. I think recent movements in Liberia have been very positive. The fact that the Electoral Commission was willing to announce uh, that the ruling party had lost. Now we have George Weir as president, so we have a transfer of power in Liberia. I think that's very positive. This is a country coming from a position of having very weak and very fragile institutions, obviously after a long period of civil war. It's not going to be straightforward. No doubt we'll see some challenges and accusations of backsliding during the George Weir presidency. But those institutions have started to demonstrate a willingness to be robust. And I think there are a number of countries like that where we can see incrementally people are starting to believe a little bit more in the institutions. One of the things that we see in the book, and this comes out of a paper by uh, Daniel Posner and Daniel Young, is that when institutions are respected and do their job, it becomes more likely that that will set a precedent that in future those institutions will be respected. So in the case that uh, Posner and Young give us in the book, when presidential term limits are respected by the first president, they are almost always respected by the second president. It's where the first president breaks term limits that the second president becomes much more likely to break term limits. So there seems to be, we don't have conclusive evidence of this, but there seems to be a precedent setting effect of good practice in an important early kind of foundational moment. And so when we have electoral commissions making similar decisions, I think maybe we also see a similar kind of effect. So there's a number of countries that are moving in that more positive direction. But as I said a moment ago, it's important to note that there are also countries that are moving in the opposite direction, where presidential checks and balances are being removed, where presidents are breaking term limits or age limits. And those countries are actively weakening their institutions and moving away from that. So what I see in a way is countries where the institutions are getting stronger, but also countries in which they're getting significantly weaker.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing some of that good news, because sometimes it just seems... Uh all the news are coming out of Africa, it's really, really negative. Things are in, aren't really working. Things are falling, falling behind. But it's also um, good to hear that, you know, there's progress being made. Institutions are getting stronger in some parts of uh, the continent. So thank you very much, Professor Cheeseman, for your very insightful interview. I hope you come back again to speak with with us about how to rig elections. Is that the title? How to rig an election?
1: How to rig an election. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'll- I'd be very happy to do it. We'll make sure that happens. Thanks so much for your time. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, The book is Institutions and Democracy in Africa, How the Rules of the Game Shape Political Development. Thank you very much for listening.